0: Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. It is a privilege to be back with you, to be able to serve you once again, and also to serve your staff, all of whom I have such immense respect and admiration for. If I were to ask you, what is your favorite sport? I probably would get a number of different answers. Probably some of you would say football. Some of you would say basketball. Some of you might say, well, my favorite sport is baseball or soccer. Some of you might say something like golf or curling or something like that, but at any rate, we would have a number of different answers. I have heard it said, and I believe it's true, that the favorite sport of Christians is judgmentalism somehow we just love judging one another as fellow members of the family of god james deals with that in james chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 i invite your attention to that passage as We continue today the journey you've been on with your pastors for some weeks now in the book of James, dealing with what heart transformation looks like. Well, what James deals with this week in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4 is one of the greatest hindrances to heart transformation, to being like Jesus, to living like Him. My experience over 49 years of church ministry is that most judgmentalism among Christians among pastors and even between churches has to do with issues of Christian liberty. In other words, issues that are not clearly spelled out in the Bible as right or wrong. There's no command, no biblical principle, no example about this. There are issues that we call issues of Christian liberty. We have the freedom to live out our own personal preferences or convictions in those particular issues. It is on those kinds of issues that we tend to judge one another's hearts and motives the most. I could even be more specific than that. More specifically, differences in opinions or personal convictions as to what constitutes worldliness. In other words, are you a worldly Christian or is she or he a worldly Christian? When we judge each other in those ways, we're often making judgments which are not allowable in Scripture. It is judgmentalism. James has referenced being friends with the world, friendship with the world in verse four. You saw that last week. And so the question is, what does he mean by that? What is worldliness? Since it is so important to understanding that, before we dive into verses 11 and 12, I want to kind of bring you my own personal journey. I want to share my own personal, what I believe to be a growth process of a changing understanding through the years of what worldliness is and is not. I was a teenager uh, during the turbulent decade of the 60s. Those of you who lived through the 60s know that there was tremendous moral upheaval in our country. And during that time, I was basically taught that in order to live out a godly life, you don't go to dances, you don't go to movies. If you're a guy, you don't grow a beard because that makes you look like the hippies, you know, of the 60s. You don't let your hair grow long if you're a guy. And that specifically was defined as over your ears or over your collar in the back. And you certainly don't listen to any music with drums and guitars, you know, whether it was contemporary rock, jazz, whatever it might be. You don't don't do those things if you want to be a faithful, godly Christian. If you do those things, then obviously you are worldly. Do you notice the heavy emphasis on externalism, on external standards of appearance and action? Those kinds of standards became legalistic sets of do's and don'ts. If you do this or do that, then you're worldly. If you don't do this or don't do that, then you are faithful, you're godly, you're a spiritual Christian. Now, I wanna make clear that I I grew up in a good church, a good Bible-believing church. I had faithful, godly, spiritually-minded parents, but it was characteristic of so many Bible-believing churches back in that era of the 60s when we saw the tremendous moral upheaval in our culture to swing the pendulum way too far the other way to kind of an externalism, legalism, the kind of thing that says you are worldly if you look like, act like, do anything that the world does. It was an extreme separatism. Well, fast forward a few years. In 1981, I had already been in the pastorate for eight years but I I felt like I needed more training. And so I enrolled in a seminary in Indiana, Grace Theological Seminary, Winona Lake, Indiana. And at the same time, the Lord opened up a a pastorate for me in the area so that I was pastoring during those years. It was during that decade of the 80s that I grew in ways that changed my understanding of worldliness, what it was and what it was not. And and I kind of look back on three separate events that didn't really help me develop that mindset, but did confirm in my heart that I was beginning to understand the scriptures better. They were a sport coat and a tie, a VCR, and a light bulb. Now that sounds random, doesn't it? So I I need to explain a little bit more. First of all, the sport coat and the tie. It was the late 80s, and apologist and youth speaker, uh, uh, Josh McDowell, was making a tour of the country, speaking to groups in major cities. And he came to Fort Wayne, Indiana, our area. And he sent out a letter to all the surrounding churches in the greater Fort Wayne area, said, bring your pastors, your youth workers, your children's workers to a special session that I'm going to be speaking just for church leaders. And so we gathered up some folks from our church and we went to the civic center there in Fort Wayne and we heard Josh McDowell. Just so happened at that time that Josh McDowell was traveling with the group Petra. Now for those of you who don't know who Petra was, ask your parents. Uh, Petra in the late 70s through the 80s and on into the 90s was probably the pioneer contemporary Christian band that really introduced Christian rock. And so McDowell was getting a lot of criticism for traveling with Petra. You know, the long hair, the, the kind of grungy clothing, and then that rock music, you know, that they were playing, wow. He was getting a lot of criticism from pastors and churches. And so he addressed that at the very beginning of his speech. And he said, you know, I've traveled with these guys now for weeks, for months. And I've been with them in up times and down times. And I have seen their heart, how they've responded. I have witnessed their love for Christ, their passion for the gospel, their passion to get the gospel out. I have heard them pray. There's no doubt in my mind, I've seen enough of their hearts that these are godly men. And then he paused a moment, scanned the audience, and looked directly at me. I was sitting about 12 rows back, and he pointed at me, he said, you, stand. And I didn't know if he was talking to me or not. It's a large audience. And so I kind of looked quizzically, and he said, yes, you, in the Navy sport coat, the beige slacks, and the Ivy League tie, stand up. And so I stood up, and he said, you know what? He said, you look just like a Wall Street banker. And he said, I know some of those guys, and not not all of them are like this, but some of those Wall Street investment bankers are among the most greedy and corrupt people on the planet. And so I'm assuming, you look a lot like them, I'm assuming you're greedy and corrupt too. Well, everybody laughed, I was humiliated, but I eventually laughed too, but everybody got his point. His point was you can judge Petra by the external appearance, you can judge that guy who looks like a Wall Street investment banker, by outward appearance and in both cases you'll probably miss their heart you will misjudge them and that really helped me understand that judgmentalism is a sin of misreading someone's motives and heart in areas that we have no ability to discern the second thing the vcr if you don't know what a vcr was a video cassette recorder again ask your parents when you go home Video cassette recorders were introduced in 1956, but they became common in homes when the price came down in the late 70s and early 80s. And we got one in the middle 80s, I guess it was. And, you know, it it caused me to reevaluate my position on going to the movies. When Jeannie and I finally came to the conviction that we, we could kind of turn our back on our upbringing in some ways and we could actually go to a movie theater, we decided our first foray, foray back into the movies would be the re-release of Disney's Bambi. We thought, you yeah, know, that's pretty safe. Uh, so what if someone saw their pastor and his wife going into the movie theater in the mid-'80s, even though it was Bambi, that doesn't matter. You're going to the movies. You are worldly, you're ungodly. But it hit me, you know, I could go to Blockbuster or movie gallery, ask your parents, and, and I could rent any movie, no matter how wicked or immoral it is, watch it in the privacy of my own home, nobody would know the difference and think of me as a godly man. So was it really where I went to see the movie, or the content of what I was putting in my mind and my heart? And I began to see that worldliness really has to do with issues of the heart. And then thirdly, there's the light bulb. Not literally a light bulb, but a light bulb went on for me as I began to study more carefully 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 and 16. Note these verses on the screen. Notice what they say. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them, for everything in the world. Now, up to this point, I'm thinking, okay, don't love the world. What does he mean? Don't love unsaved people? Don't love the planet? What does he mean by the world? And then he says, okay, I'm gonna tell you. Everything in the world. This is it. These are the three pillars of the world. This is what the world is composed of. This is what worldliness is. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says that comes not from the Father, but from the world. So you see, the world is not uh, external things like going to the movies or going to a dance or whatever. That's not it. The world and the worldliness is on the inside. It's in the heart. It has to do with what you're entertaining in your mind, the lust of the flesh, the the strong desire for the sinful nature and all of its pull towards sin to be fulfilled, and to entertain that in my heart and mind. That's the lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes is greed, envy, jealousy, wanting to keep up with the Joneses. It's the desire to have whatever my eyes see. It is materialism. It is a, a... an undue focus on possessions as being the sign of success or the sign even of God's blessing. Then the pride of life. That's boasting or being proud. It's the desire for position, for popularity, for fame, to be recognized, to make sure everybody knows I made it to the top, I'm number one, I'm the best, to have my name in the lights. Everything in the world comes under one of those three categories, and all three of them have to do with the mind and the heart, not necessarily the outward actions or appearance. And I I came to see in that decade of thinking through these things that worldliness really is not necessarily... Not going to a dance or going to a dance or going to a movie or letting my hair grow a little longer or listening to a certain style of music. That's not worldliness. Worldliness is whether or not I'm entertaining the lusts of the flesh in my heart, whether or not my ambition in life has to do with having whatever I see, and whether or not my goal is to have people recognize me, to be the best, to be popular, to be recognized and known. That is worldliness. And that's what James is speaking of in James chapter four. It also directly ties in to our verses today, verses 11 and 12, because the emphasis on externals leads to judgmentalism. We begin to judge others' hearts by what we see on the outside, by actions and appearance. And so it leads directly into judgmentalism. What I'm talking about today is comparing, criticizing, condemning someone, because they don't follow all of the external standards of appearance and action that I do. So I'm taking my set of preferences and convictions and forcing them on everybody else as the sign of what godliness is and what worldliness is. That is judgmentalism, and that's what James warns against in this passage. James issues two strong warnings against judgmentalism. The first has to do with the description of judgmentalism. Notice how he describes it in verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now those are the words in bold on the verse on the screen. He goes on to say some other things about judging, but, but notice he's saying, do not slander one another. These are sharp, curt warnings, staccato-like statements that warn us in no uncertain terms. Do not slander one another as brothers and sisters. Notice he again addresses our speech. That's been very common in the book of James. You've seen it, no doubt, as you've gone through the book. I counted the other day at least nine occasions where he directly, there are others implied, but at least nine direct references to our speech in the book of James. So it's obvious that it's a huge part of our spiritual transformation. I wanna just refer you to those verses, not to to deal with them this morning, but just to remind you of how frequent this is in the book of James. So you might want to jot these down. If if you're uh, prone to marking in your Bible, you might want to mark these verses, all of which have to do with speech. If you don't think marking in your Bible is the right thing to do, scoot over and mark in your neighbor's Bible. But just make sure you you get these verses down. You understand these are important about the tongue. Just going to mention them. Chapter one, verse 19. Chapter one, verse 26. Verse 26. Chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 14. And then that long section, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, which has to do with the taming of the tongue. You'll see it again after our passage today. You'll see it again next week in chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. And then finally in chapter 5, and verse 12. Nine times, he directly addresses our speech. What kind of speech? is involved in judgmentalism, in the comparing and criticism and condemning that believers do of one another over personal preferences or convictions. What kind of speech is it? Well, look again at verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now the English word slander might be a little misleading because our English word slander basically means to smear someone's reputation by telling something about them that's not true. the Greek word that James used, that is translated slander in our English version, is a much broader word. It actually occurs three times in this verse. The other two times it's translated speaks against. You see them there in verse 11? Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law. Slander and those two, speaks against, are both the same word. It's a compound word, a verb and a preposition in Greek that are put together, which literally translated means to speak down on, to speak down on. What I'm talking about, what James is talking about by way of judgmentalism is this. A harsh, critical remark or harsh, critical remarks that call attention to a perceived fault, something that you perceive to be a fault in their heart or their behavior or whatever, that puts that person down and seeks to influence others against them. That is what James is talking about. Let me say that again. Judgmentalism, speaking down on, is harsh critical comments or remarks that call attention to perceived faults in others to put them down and influence others against them. Sometimes we just use the words to run someone down or a put down. And a put down is like an art form. Comedians have made their careers out of put downs. A put down basically is, is minimizing someone else's traits or accomplishments with skillful verbal jabs. Oh, so skillfully done. Let me give you a few examples. You're taking someone on the nickel and dime tour of your home and they see your Steinway piano and they look over at it with a condescending tone and say, oh, what a nice little piano. Or you um, are talking with someone and they're talking about a subject that's kind of a far out subject that only a few people know about and they look at you with a superior tone and say, oh, you didn't know about that? Or someone says to you, you look great. Have you had cosmetic surgery? Or maybe someone has been invited to dinner in your home and they say, dinner was wonderful. Isn't chicken cheap these days? Those are put downs. Those are little verbal jabs that seek to minimize someone else's person or traits or character or accomplishments with a verbal jab. That is slander, that is judgmentalism. It is speaking down on and James says don't do it. Now notice he also uses the word judges. He says anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them. And We need to understand what kind of judgment he's talking about here. Because there is a biblical kind of judgment. Any biblical rebuke, any biblical correction any discerning of what false teaching is as opposed to biblical teaching, that is a biblical good form of judging. And the Bible says that we should have that kind of discernment, but that's far different from judgmentalism. That's far different from judging someone's motives and heart just based on their outward appearance or actions. James is using the word judge here in the same sense he uses the word speak down on or slander, it is judgmentalism, a critical spirit that speaks harshly against someone, someone, another believer, to run them down. And James says, stop the judgmental spirit and words. Stop that. That's the warning of the description of judgmentalism. We need to understand what he's talking about first. But then James goes on with his second warning to warn us about the dangers of judgmentalism. In these verses, there are four dangers that he points out. And again, they are stern warnings. The first one is this. Judgmentalism forgets our family relationship. Look again at verse 11. Judgmentalism forgets our family relationship. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. Those words are in bold on the screen because those are the key words that James repeats to remind us of our relationship with one another. In fact, you see the word them, it actually is another occurrence of the Greek term for brothers and sisters. The Greek word adelphoi which means brothers but is often used in the New Testament in a generic way of all of those who are part of the family of God, whether they're men or women. So it's properly translated brothers and sisters in the NIV. But the word them, which they substituted to kind of make it read more smoothly, it's another occurrence of the word brothers. And so three times in that one verse, he reminds us, it's almost as though he's wanting to to get our attention with this. We are a part of the family together. We're brothers and sisters. We're members of the family of God. And his point seems to be, we might expect judgmental spirits from opponents of the faith, from unbelievers who may ridicule or misunderstand us or think we're kind of weird because we seem to be religious fanatics. We might expect that from the world. But it is unacceptable in the family. It should not happen in the family. We're brothers and sisters. We are to love each other. We are to support each other. We are to protect each other. Look at how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You see, Paul and James are in agreement on this. Stop the judgmentalism of fellow believers because when we do that, we forget our relationship, our family relationship, and how we're to relate as brothers and sisters. The second danger of judgmentalism is this. James says that judgmentalism usurps the authority of the word. Now this is really getting serious. That's the reason why there's an exclamation, ex, exclamation mark here. Easy for you to say. It is so strong what James says. I want you to see how strong this is. Look again at verse 11. He says, anyone who judges against, speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not judging it, but sitting in judgment on it. Now, this is really important stuff and dangerous stuff. But we have to understand, first of all, what he means by law. Most commentators believe that James is not speaking strictly of the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Bible where God gave his law to the nation of Israel. Most commentators believe that James is not speaking specifically of that, but he's using the term law in a broader sense of the word of God. And that does seem to be James' MO throughout this book. Back in chapter one and verse 25, notice what he says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it. What does he mean by law there? Well, it's very clear in the context there because in verse 22, he said, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do it. So he's mentioned the word of God twice and then he says the law. So those two are the same. Same thing in chapter two and verse eight, where he talks about the royal law. If you really keep the royal law, the law that is kingly, that is kind of set on a throne above all else is one of the key summations of the, the Old Testament law. Anyone who keeps the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Again, he uses the term law simply of the Bible, the word of God. Yes, that command is found first in Leviticus, but it's also repeated numerous times by Jesus and by Paul in the Word of God. So he's speaking here of the Word of God as a whole. That's important to understand because what James is saying here, the danger is this. Judgmentalism against your brother or sister in Christ violates the Word of God, but it's even worse than that. He says when you do that, you're not just disobeying the law you are sitting in judgment on it do you see that in the last part of the verse 11 you're sitting in judgment on it Now this is where it gets really serious when i am judgmental toward my brother or sister in christ judging their motives and hearts in areas where i'm not qualified to judge when i do that The Bible says, I'm placing myself above God's word. I'm saying that God's word is not good enough. I'm acting on a higher principle. I'm exempt from God's law, and I'm qualified to enact a better authority, mine. Wow, how preposterous is that? How arrogant is that? Kent Hughes is one of my favorite commentators For many years, the pastor at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. The uh, editor of the Preaching the Word commentary series, which I notice your pastor has some in his library. He actually was the author, Kent Hughes was, of most of those commentaries. They are straight from his sermons. A masterful preacher. He was one of my adjunct professors in my doctoral program. And I say that because I want you to know I know him well enough, I've been around him enough to know that he is a gentle, gracious Christian gentleman. But he does not mince words when he comes to this part of the book of James. Listen to what he says. He says, the argument here is meant to deliver us from mind games, which tell us it's okay to be judgmental because we are so spiritually sensitive and insightful or because we have the kingdom's good as the motivation behind our judgments. Now, these are his words, not mine. God says this is stupid arrogance of cosmic dimensions. Perhaps we should have been on Sinai with Moses. Now, his point is this. You remember Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai from God? It was clear who the authority was, and it was not Moses. I mean, the earthquake, the mountain shaking, the loud voice of God, the fire and the smoke coming from Mount Sinai. It was clear who the authority was. So there was none of this going on on Mount Sinai where God inscribed with his finger the 10 Commandments and then Moses said, you know, number four is really good, but I think it would be better if we worded it this way. Or number, number 10, you know, I've got another thought, maybe something we could, we could use instead of that when we'll put this one in. It was obviously none of that on Mount Sinai. Moses was not the lawgiver. Moses did not place himself above the law. This was God's law. This is God's word. And anytime I judge my brother or sister, I'm guilty of judgmentalism. I am usurping the authority of the word of God. How arrogant. Clear. Sharp warning against this danger. Third danger that James warns against of judgmentalism is judgmentalism forgets who the real judge is. Verse 12, forgets who the real judge is. Verse 12 says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Obviously, there's only one who gave the law. That's God. God's word did not originate with me, it did not originate with you, Actually, if you understand inspiration correctly, it did not originate with the writers of Scripture. The Bible says all Scripture is breathed out by God, and through the Holy Spirit, the writers of Scripture were guarded from any error as they wrote it. So God gave them the word to give. It does not originate from them, although they were his instruments in recording it. So God is the only lawgiver, and God is the judge who alone is qualified to apply the law in whatever circumstance that may be. God alone does that. So for me to become judge is to usurp the place of the sovereign ruler of the universe who alone is qualified to tell his universe how to operate and his children how to live. That's God's responsibility. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge. And so for me to to judge others as fellow believers is to forget who the real judge is. Again, Kent Hughes says it so well. He mentions some other scriptures that identify God as the the lawgiver and judge, and he says this. These scriptures illustrate James' logic here. Since God is the only one who can save and destroy, and that simply means that God, when you trusted Christ, saved you and removed the condemnation of the law against you. Thank God for that. But God is also the only one who can destroy a word in the New Testament which doesn't mean to annihilate or to cause disease to, to exist. It simply means to judge in eternal torment and separation apart from God. So, since uh, Hughes says, since God only has the right only can save and destroy, he only has the right to judge. Therefore, for us to judge one of God's creatures is to usurp a right that only God has. Listen to what he says. Thus, judgmentalism is not only arrogant, but blasphemous. This alone ought to seal our judgmental, demeaning lips for eternity. I think he's caught the seriousness of James' warning. James says that judgmentalism forgets our family relationship. It usurps the authority of the word of God. It forgets who the real judge is. And then here's the capstone, the fourth one. It forgets who we are. Judgmentalism also forgets who we are. Look at how he ends, verse 12, with a withering question that serves as a stinging rebuke. Notice what he says. But you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? I think we've got a great translation of it in the NIV. The the strong uh, adversity, but, the strong contrast, but, and then the the, the pronoun you moved to the front of the sentence, which was always done in Greek to show emphasis. It's as though James has been looking into the face of God the awesomeness, the wonder of God as the only one who is the authority of the universe, the sovereign ruler, who is the lawgiver and the judge. And he's enraptured with the glory of God. And then he looks at us and he says, but you, who do you think you are to judge your neighbor? The sharp contrast should kind of jerk us up and help us to realize who do we think we are? And when you think about it, I'm not qualified to judge the heart and motives of another believer anyway. You know why? My judgment, my observation of them is colored by two things. It's clouded by two things. First of all, my ignorance of what's in their heart. I don't know what's in their heart. Only God knows that. And secondly, by the sinfulness of my own heart. That clouds my observation too. So I'd better leave that kind of judgment, that kind of discerning of the motives and intents and thoughts of the heart up to God. Because when I'm guilty of judgmentalism, I not only forget who he is, I forget who I am. This is the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 14, and verse four, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. That's in a passage that deals with areas of Christian liberty. And he says, you leave them alone. If you differ on certain areas of action or behavior, you don't judge. That's up to God to judge. And God is able to make that other brother or sister stand. Even if you think they're doing the wrong thing, he's able to make them stand. He's the one that judges their hearts. So what do we do with judgmentalism? Just stop it. Is that what I'm telling you? Just stop being judgmental. Well, the problem with just saying that and going no further is that anytime we try to stop something, we're acting in our own effort and strength. God has given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do whatever He commands us to do. And so I would phrase it this way. Change your focus to these two truths, which, by the way, Jesus said fulfilled all the requirements of the law that God ever expected of anybody. So first of all, I would say, love God. Love God. Understand that as the lawgiver and the judge, rather than judging you, he sent his son Jesus to take his judgment that you deserved and I deserved on himself. And when you trusted him as savior, he removed all of the condemnation of the law against you when you fully realize that, when you realize that deep in your heart that Jesus died for you, then you will understand that the only response is to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, I would say love others. Love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Recognize that other believers have experienced the same grace and mercy of God. They are fellow members of the family with you. And because of that, You are journeying together. Take your place alongside them rather than judging them. Grow together. Help each other grow. Don't be their judge. Strong warnings against judgmentalism. Would you pray with me, please? Father, these are indeed strong warnings. They're stern, but they are so needed in our hearts. Help us to learn what it means to love you and to love others and not to set ourselves up as judge of people's motives and hearts in jesus name we pray amen for more information visit us at biblecenterchurch.com or check us out on social media